Gone are the days of knights and chivalry, and yet that hasn't changed God's vision of you as a man of valor. Today, pornography is a simple mouse click away, and sexual addiction is at an epidemic level. Dr. Mark Laser is an internationally known author and speaker, the leading Christian authority on sexual addiction, and the host of Faithful and True's new online radio production, The Men of Valor Program. Here now is Dr. Mark Laser. Welcome to our show today. Today we're going to introduce a topic, the seeds of addiction. And uh, I suspect, Randy, that we're going to need more than one show to go over this one as we get into it. So today we're going to, though, start talking about what are some of the factors that uh, develop addiction in a person's life? I can imagine that goes way back to early years in a family. It probably does, and that's one of the things we certainly want to talk about today. I was just thinking, Randy, that uh, you know we do uh, uh, workshops here not just for uh, men struggling with sexual addiction, but we also do workshops here for their wives. And I have the uh, the privilege of talking to the wives uh, during that workshop a couple of different times, and uh, we just had a group here recently, and I. I think they hold the record for the greatest number of questions that they wanted to know from me. And I think one of the themes of those questions was, uh, how did my husband get the way he is? I mean, where did this start? You know, what what created this? Uh, how did this happen? Uh, you know, how far back does this go? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, I think it is actually one of the most controversial topics in our field in terms of uh, what are the factors in a family that that create addiction. When I went to uh, treatment back in 1987, we kind of call it the golden age of uh, uh, addiction treatment. We're in Minnesota, as most of our listeners know, and uh, Minnesota was the birthplace of alcohol treatment, uh, which, of course, led to you know one of the most famous treatment centers in the world for alcoholism, Hazleton, which is just north of where we sit. But this all began back in the 1940s. And by the time we got to the 1970s and early 80s, there were other people that were now talking about other kinds of addiction, both chemical addictions. We now knew it was not just alcohol, but other drugs. And we also started talking about gambling and eating and other forms of behavioral addictions, uh, that all led to what we call the golden age of treatment. And one of the jokes about Minnesota is that we're not really the uh, land of 10,000 lakes. We're the land of 10,000 treatment centers here. Uh, There used to be a mom-and-pop type treatment place almost on every corner, it seemed like. I'm just introducing that to say that back in those days, some of the great writers in the field of addiction were here in the Twin Cities. Uh, you know, Dr. Patrick Carnes, uh, Melanie Beatty, who wrote the very first book on codependency, Terry Kellogg, uh, Ernie Larson, uh, some of those people were here. And uh, one of the things that was coming out of that was that they were starting to tie in some uh, some of the newer thinking that had been going on in the 60s and 70s about families and, you know, how families have dysfunction and and how uh, families create problems. One of the great writers back in the, uh, primarily the 80s, but he's still active and alive today, is John Bradshaw. His book, Bradshaw on the Family, became you know one of the classic books on uh, family of origin dysfunction. 
what I'm getting to here is that by the time I got to treatment, uh, it was generally assumed that if you were an addict needing treatment, uh, you must have come from a really, really sick family. And so your job in the healing journey became to figure out what kind of a sick family you came from. Uh, so that was a challenge for some of us who, you know, up uh, until that point had not really necessarily considered that we had, you know, all that bad of a family. And I think there were those of us that uh, kind of resisted that work in general. And Carnes came along, Pat Carnes, the founder of our field, came along in the late 80s and did some research with uh, a group of sex addicts, quite a, quite a few, a thousand or more, and uh, in his uh, questionnaires, he discovered that a very high percentage of sex addicts had been sexually abused as children, a very high percentage had been physically abused as children, and uh, a, another very high percentage had been emotionally abused. And when you think about it, some of the guys that were coming into treatment uh, had, be, had been abused in all three of those ways. Mark, what, would most of those experiences from an, from an early family uh, life uh, are those generally repressed in the mind of, a, of an addict? Uh, for some they are, for some they're not. And uh, uh, repression is, a, is an interesting thing. It basically means that uh, the mind is so wounded or in so much pain, it just kind of shuts itself off because it can't tolerate the pain. So it's actually a very natural dynamic God has built into the brain so that you know, we don't have to you know, tolerate too many memories that we, we simply can't handle. I think of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells us that God will not give us anything that we can't handle, uh, and with every uh, temptation will show us a way of escape. And I've always thought when it comes to woundedness, God will only allow us to remember what we can handle. And one of the things that I think is true is that as we get into recovery and as we get into safe community, uh, because we're in safe community, that's when stuff may start coming back to us. But before we go too much further with this whole conversation about you know, the, the possibility that for an addict they may have had some kind of invasion or some kind of invasive abuse as a child. I want to I make a general statement about our belief here at our uh, ministry, our counseling center, our work that we do, whether we're writing about it, speaking about it, leading a workshop, or counseling individuals or couples. And that is, I, we're, we're not here to blame parents for the fact that there's a guy that's an addict, you know. So, you know, if, if there's a person that's an addict, it must be his parents' fault. We don't, we don't believe that. Uh, we don't have knockdown, drag-out confrontation sessions here. Uh, we don't have people uh, beat up pillows and, you know, that kind of thing here. Uh, I'm particularly fond of that scene from uh, the movie Analyze This where uh, the therapist played by Billy Crystal has the, the mafia guy played by Robert De Niro uh, do a little anger work in his office and Robert De Niro takes out his, uh, his uh, handgun and blasts the pillow to smithereens. But we're not the kind of place that you know, believes in you know, the value of just getting angry at stuff and that's going to be automatically healing. Now having said that, it is important though I think to understand some of the things that happen to us. But first of all, I want to make sure the listeners understand that if, if in this show and maybe some future shows, we're going to take you on a journey of trying to understand more about your own growing up years is, you know, where did the seeds of addiction start? 
we we want to give you permission that you can do that without being judgmental or you know having to be angry at your parents or having to have some kind of confrontation with your parents. We're never going to encourage you to do that. I've just never seen that to be particularly helpful. I think one of the things to for the listeners to think about is that we're all prone to making mistakes, aren't we? So Paul said, uh, certainly in the New Testament, we all sin, we all fall short. There is no sin that is not you know, common to man. I think myself as a parent about all the mistakes that I've made and all the inadequacies that I represent. So I know that as a parent myself, I, I need a lot of grace and forgiveness. I think that's one of the one of the places for the listeners to start, particularly those listeners that have their own children. I mean, you know, one of the things Debbie and I uh, used to joke about when we were first getting in the field is that, you know, all the financial planners were telling us we needed to start a college fund for the kids. And the joke was maybe we needed to start a treatment fund for all of our kids because of all the mistakes <laughs> we recognize that we Sooner or later, made. they're going to need some they're therapy. They're going to need some therapy and help. So uh, I just want to give the the listeners permission to you know understand some things about their past without without thinking that they have to get in this really judgmental angry place the other thought that i want to introduce is that while while we think that when we talk about the past you know it always has to be about your parents uh your mother father stepmother stepfathers whoever you grew up with uh the truth of it is you know all of us come from extended families and you know, some of the stuff that happened to us may have happened at the hands of grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, that whole category of people. You know, increasingly, I'm impressed with the fact that, you know, so many of the guys that come to the workshop had experiences with neighbors, with, you know, in other words, kids down the street, uh, kids at school. You know, when I think about, you know, some of the woundedness that happens to a lot of us, you know, in our peer groups on the playground, in the classroom, uh, you know, there's sometimes a lot of damage that happens to some of us, you know, in our school cultures. I think about some of the organizations and maybe some of the uh, not so great leadership that we had in some of our organizations. And I'm not going to name any of them. I don't want any of the listeners to think that we're picking on any of those. I'm, I'm just asking, when you think about the seeds of addiction and, and maybe some of the negative stuff that happened to you, it's a much broader question. It's a culture-wide question in terms of school, neighborhood, culture, clubs, fraternities, sports teams, coaches, teachers, pastors even. I mean, so, so many of the guys that come to us have had negative experience with, uh, with their pastors, you know, even up to the point of, of sexual abuse. So, uh, open your thinking. This doesn't necessarily have to be about your parents. Now, the o- the other thing to think about, I think, in this whole category of talking about what happened to you when you were small is there are things that, that did happen to us. I mean, you know, part of my story is, you know, having been sexually abused as a child. Uh, so there are things that, that happened to us, and I think there are things that we all needed to get uh, and we didn't get them, and so that's a whole large category of problems that we generally refer to as abandonment or neglect. Uh, some people would call it deprivation abuse. So I want the listeners, when you're thinking about your past and your history, to divide it kind of into two categories. What were some of the things that happened to you that affected you, and what were some of the things that you absolutely needed but didn't get that also affected you? And, and I would say, when it comes to addiction, 
<clears throat> there are some, and I'm certainly one of them, that believe that addiction is a pursuit of uh, getting some things that maybe you didn't get when you were a child. So if the listeners, and particularly, again, those listeners who are listening as a group, you know, have a conversation simply about the distinction between those two categories and some of the things that happened to you and some of the things that didn't happen to you. Because they're all considered seeds of addiction, That right? is right. That is right. Now, one of the, one of the, the key components here, maybe uh, one of the ones we can start with uh, on the show today is simply this. When we were growing up and things were happening to us and not happening to us, uh, all of us learned to cope. All of us learned to somehow deal with that. One of the things I'd like the listeners to think about, particularly in this show, is what uh, did we learn to do to cope with whatever was happening or not happening to us. So we need to take a break, Randy, but when we get back, let's start talking about that one. Sounds like a great idea. You're listening to the Men of Valor program with Dr. Mark Laser, and we'll be right back. long to grow closer emotionally and spiritually as a couple? Faithful and True is a Christian-based counseling center in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, specializing in the treatment of sex addiction and relational betrayal. The professionals on our staff have the highest levels of clinical expertise combined with personal experience to help you reach a new level of genuine intimacy in your relationship. We have a proven track record for helping couples who are seeking a transformation in their lives. Our three-day couples intensive workshops, led by Mark and Debbie Laser, authors of The Seven Desires of Every Heart, will help you and your partner become companions for life, building empathy and unconditional love for each other. If you and your spouse or partner are serious about growing closer emotionally and spiritually and experiencing a deeper level of intimacy in your relationship, visit us at FaithfulAndTrue.com to learn more. That's FaithfulAndTrue.com. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about coping, uh, how we learn to survive. I think that's another good word to uh, think about, how we learn to survive growing up in our families and our culture. So I want the listeners to be thinking about some of the things they may have done to cope with whatever was going on or whatever was not going on. So one of the, the places I usually start when I'm lecturing about this is to just remember my own family. One of the research findings that that we've arrived at at our field back with a research study that Pat Carnes did back in the late 80s was that every addict that came into treatment back in those days, back in the late 80s, could trace that there was at least one addict in the previous generation. So in other words, a mother, a father, an uncle or aunt, you know, something like that. And so the truth of it is that a lot of addicts grow up with some form of addiction, and that's some of the modeling that they see first uh, when they themselves might be starting to feel some of the pain or loneliness or anxiety 
of whatever is going on or not going on for them. I think about my family, for example, before I ever got to school, and uh, when I was lonely early on, my, my mother was very good at uh, just turning on the TV and uh, making a snack. So before I was ever five years old, you know, my, my mother wasn't doing a particularly good job of talking directly to me. That was more of a kind of a matter of uh, some neglect, I think. And, but she was very good at, you know, the TV and the TV tray and snacks. And, you know, those that know me today and are around me today at my house would tell you that having a snack in front of the TV is still one of the things that is a very important part of my ritual, particularly before I go to bed at night. That's how she'd make your problems go away. That is exactly right. That's one way to look at it. I mean, if I was stressed, if I was lonely, if I was anxious, if I was sad, whatever it was, well, turning on the TV uh, and having something to eat was uh, was always the solution as far as she was concerned. I, I'd get up in the morning, and, and when I went to school... I'm sure I had anxieties about going to school. There were some things happening at school that were, you know, not all that much fun. And uh, there again, my mother would turn on Captain Kangaroo, it shows you how old I am, and make breakfast. And I would literally every morning of my school age years, including all the way into high school, I, I, would, I would have breakfast on a TV tray in front of the television. And so Mr. Green Jeans became one, one, one of your best friends. Bunny Rabbit. Yeah. Mr. Moose. Or, Mr. Moose, whatever. The, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Randy. We're I mean, both too we old. We just lost all the listeners that are 50 years old or what younger. What are these two crazies talking about? Yeah. Even at night in my home, my dad you know, was a TV freak also. And, and uh, we'd sit around as a family. We wouldn't talk about anything serious. Uh, and in those days, my father smoked. So, and in those days, of course, she smoked inside and didn't think anything of it. So, <clears throat> so we were inhaling all of his secondhand smoke. And to this day, if I'm standing around someone who's smoking, uh, it kind of takes me back to uh, you know those family times of sitting around the TV, eating, inhaling smoke, you know, uh, watching television, all that kind of thing. I'm just giving you my own story, but I, you know, the listeners. What was it like in your home? How did people deal with their stress? How did people deal with their loneliness? How did people deal with their anger? You know, did you grow up with an alcoholic? Did you grow up with a food addict, with people who were grossly overweight? Did you grow up with other kinds of stuff? Did people just stay busy all the time? I mean, that's another way of coping. Uh, we have uh, a whole chapter on coping in our book, The Seven Desires. And uh, if you're interested in this one, one of the seeds of addiction is that I'm trying to talk about here is the seed of, uh, of addictive behavior is how we learn to cope, how we learn to, in a sense, medicate our feelings with either substances or behaviors when we were growing up. And does that psychologically, uh, that's meant to ease the pain and to get you to move forward, to, to not have, it, uh, have the pain devastate you? Well, that's exactly right. It's a survival strategy. And uh, this is an important point, by the way. One of the things that uh, I think is true is that given the fact that there was so much to survive or cope with and that this coping and maybe later these patterns become addictions, the addiction is a matter of surviving the, the chaos of your early life. That survival quality of what you're doing is part of the reason why it's for for many so hard to give up their addiction. They all know, I mean we all know that drinking, smoking, 
whatever else it is, you know, is going to kill us uh, if we don't stop. Uh, certainly in our field of sexual addiction, we know that we're violating all kind of, you know, moral laws and, and we're sinning and we're doing all of these things. We know it's absolutely wrong. What is it that keeps us doing it? Doing it? Well, one of the seeds of addiction is that our uh, coping strategies are survival strategies. They're, they're what we learn to do as, as a child to actually survive. So I think about it in terms of, uh, and I've told this story before on the show, when I was 11 years old and saw my first pornographic magazine, you know, it was a lone, I was a lonely kid. I, I was growing up in a family that didn't know how to talk about things in a healthy way. I was growing up around a mother who didn't know how to connect and relate to me. I was tall, awkward. There was a lot of things going on to me that were creating anxiety, stress, loneliness. I was in a uh, accelerated learning program. I had four hours of homework a night. It was a crazy time in my life that I just, I hated going to school. I hated coming home. I mean, it was just really kind of a problem. And and that was when the high or the adrenaline and even the dopamine of sexual arousal, that became my escape. So, you know, I get into my later years, I get married, I know I'm supposed to stop all of this stuff. But at that point, you know, I'm asking myself to give up something that in, in, in reality had been had had kept me going, you know. Had been comforting to Had you. been very com that's another great word when it comes to the seeds of addiction. You know, whatever we do that's addictive, it is a source of comfort to us. It could be smoking, it could even be drinking, it could be whatever it is that uh, creates neurochemistry such that it gives us a mood elevation or it helps to calm us down or whatever else it is. You know, one of the primary seeds of addiction is that we learn to take care of ourselves in a, in a certain way. And, and we know we're going to need our drug or the behavior that produces a drug in the brain in order to take care of ourselves. And so as you move forward, um, I think what you're doing is, as we're uh, starting to uh, approach the wrap-up of today's show, uh, it's clear that this uh, topic of the seeds of addiction and, co and the subject of coping uh, is a, a big topic uh, to be looked at closer uh, on a future show. Yeah, maybe for today, uh, let's just leave the listeners with uh, a couple of questions. I, you know, or maybe in in the form of a summary of the, some of the dynamics we talked about today. Uh, first of all, you know, just again the introduction that you don't need to uh, confront anybody, get really angry or judgmental. In your growing up years, what kind of modeling was there about coping? Eating, drinking, gambling, working, whatever else it happened to be. Who was perhaps an addict in the previous generation? Secondly, we want the addicts to, uh, the people listening to open up their thinking about, you know, some of the other cultural influences in their life from other elements of, of culture. Then finally, uh, we'd like for them to think about, uh, even early on, even before school started for them, what were some of the things that they learned how to do in their life to uh, more or less manage their mood, to soothe themselves, to comfort themselves, to distract themselves, to elevate their mood or to calm them down? When did they, they learn how to do that? Those listeners of our show who are, in fact, sex addicts may find in this whole uh, pursuit that, that their sexual addiction was actually a later arrival, you know, when they became adolescents and learned how to look at pornography and masturbate. By the time they started doing that, they may have had other things that they were already doing in terms of like the TV watching, the, the eating, uh, the, the snack on a TV tray in front of the TV. Sounds so comforting to me, Rand. And yet, 
here you are, Mark, in 26 years of recovery, and there's still things that are the oldest things that are obviously still important to you. We'd like to thank you for listening to the Men of Valor program this week. You've been listening to Dr. Mark Laser. I'm your co-host, Randy Everett. We'd like to thank Ben Laser, our engineer and technical director. We hope that you can join us once again when we return next week. You've been listening to the Men of Valor program with Dr. Mark Laser. For information about this program or to learn more about Faithful and True, visit us at faithfulandtrue.com. That's faithfulandtrue.com.